0: Amen. Please be seated. This morning I will pause from our usual exposition of 1 Corinthians to bring you uh, the first of four different special Advent sermons. I think I confess this to you every year. I'm not a, I'm neither a fan nor good at topical sermons as such, but every time I bring up, usually with my wife first, the idea of, you know, I think I'm just going to keep going through 1 Corinthians, I met with resistance immediately that, Advent is a good time to focus upon uh, the coming of Christ and his, the ramifications of his coming. And that's true. And that is an important feature. That's why I think that people in the past built this into the church year, if you will, to make sure a special focus was given to something we should consider all the time in our study of the scripture and in sermons. But now, especially, we're going to look at uh, the effect of Jesus being sent into the world on our behalf as a man, God the Son, agreeing Uh, with the Trinity to be sent as a man. It's no small thing. And it does demand special focus from time to time. And we'll do that over the course of these four weeks in a special way. And the way I'd like to do it is to consider Jesus is being sent and what that means for us being sent by him. Uh, Because he says this in a very important line in what I think is the most profound prayer prayed in the Bible. My favorite chapter of the Bible will get this Prompting from this one statement that jesus makes and i'll go from there with several thoughts for you over the course of the next four weeks The text that I want to refer to just to begin with is john 17 18 and this will guide us throughout our time of advent consideration This is in the middle of jesus's prayer. It's printed on the top of your bulletin outline That's all you need to see at this moment. I'll have you turn to some other passages in a bit But in John 17, the Lord Jesus is praying for us. He's praying first for the disciples who are right there, and then by extension, those who would come to believe as a result of the witness of the disciples. So it's the the prayer of Jesus called the high priestly prayer, and he's praying for us. The reason why this is such a special chapter, I think, is because it's Jesus praying. And unlike you and I, when we pray, we don't always pray for God's will. We try to. We offer our desires, hoping they're in line with God's will. That's Frankly, why we pray often is so that our desires would become in line with God's will. But when God the Son prays, he always prays God's will. And for all the complexities of what the Bible teaches, especially about what we should be doing as the people of God, to hear Jesus with his heart pray to the Father about his people and what he wants them to become and what he wants them to do That really just makes my ears perk up. I'm sensitive to this, especially to keep things simple, even in our church, to model those things that are Christ's will for his church. And you know that prayer is about unity, the unity of the believer, so that people would know Jesus was the Savior. But laden in that prayer is something else, and it comes in verse 18, and this is the verse I would like to use to prompt us to consider several things. The verse, very simply, now he's praying to God the Father, He's speaking first in this part of John 17 about his disciples who had become apostles. But by extension, this then will lead to us who come to believe as a result of the witness of the apostles. So we can certainly see this attributed to ourselves as Jesus prays. Hear God's word as I begin this Advent series. John 17:18 says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. Into the world. Let's let's pray together. Father, it is that time of the year that we designate to intensely consider the incarnation of our Lord Jesus and all of its ramifications for our lives. Uh, By the hymns we sing, by the scripture readings that we read. The various activities we have, we are exposed to all sorts of aspects related to Jesus coming in the flesh. For these four weeks, in particular, please help us, the Redeemer family, to think about the implications of John 17:18, that you sent Jesus into the world to do certain things, the chief mission to die for the sins of your people. But you sent Jesus to do several things related to this central mission. Then in John 17:18, you say, "So I have sent them into the world." Lord, I take this to mean that we must be about the same things that our Lord Jesus was about while he was on earth. During this Advent season, please give us a prompting about how we might see ourselves as sent by Jesus to bring the gospel, to show compassion, to speak the truth, and to bring peace. Lord, as I approach this series somewhat topically, I pray that all that I say would be in line with your holy word pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you have before you just this one sentence out of this prayer that Jesus prays. As you sent me into the world, Jesus praying to God the Father, so I have sent them into the world. The prayer that Jesus prays is for his immediate disciples who would become apostles and for all those who would believe because of their witness about Christ. That's us. Jesus' prayer and God's will, they're the same. And he is praying here that in some way we would be sent into the world the same way he was sent into this world, which is what we consider in Advent. Advent's not just about sentimentality about Jesus' birth and, and his being a baby in a manger and all that. It's got to go further than that. It has to do with what his coming ultimately accomplishes that Bob referenced before he prayed. It's all about the freedom we have now from our sins because jesus comes to die for our sins Uh, there's no mistake that the central centrality of the message of the gospel is jesus coming to offer himself as a sacrifice so god sent him into the world to do that but in sending jesus god accomplished much through christ and if we look at christ's life as i would like us to do at least in four ways over these four weeks we'll see ways in which he carried himself things he did that I believe are in the mind of Christ, as he says, so as you sent me, I send them. And so let's consider those together as, I think, a reasonable application of Advent in our lives, the coming of Jesus, that we are sent by Jesus. And he sends us to do several things. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment, the sending that Jesus uh, puts us upon. Most of you are probably familiar with the space shuttle program. I know for all of my childhood, that is what was spoken of as the big thing that was coming up. It was kind of in response in the early 70s to the success of the Russian program, where the American scientists and NASA were trying to come up with a way to do it somewhat cheaper, but more effectively and quicker. And so they came up with the space shuttle program. And it started its development in the early 70s, like 1971 or 72, and it was a 10-year ramp-up before they actually launched the Columbia, the first of the five shuttles to go up. Eventually, over 30 years, there'd be 135 missions by these five different shuttles. But the ramp-up for it was huge. I mean, it took a long time before that Columbia was rolled up to the first launch pad. I mean, for nine-plus years, engineers worked day and night on this. Some of the most difficult uh, problems had to be solved. The most technical machine ever built at that point was developed over this nine-year period. Huge ramp-up with thousands of people and billions and billions of dollars poured into this program. And then, finally, in 1981, the Columbia is rolled out of the hangar. I mean, I remember seeing it. I was 10 years old. And they were showing it in all our weekly newsletters about this space shuttle. It just seemed otherworldly to us, that we're going to fly into this thing. It looks like a plane almost, but it's huge, and it's going to fly off into space. And then they started explaining, no, the way they're going to launch it is they're going to put it on these huge rockets. there will be this big main rocket filled with fuel and these solid rocket boosters. And now that's old hat to us because we watched it for 30 years. But at that time, if you remember how amazing the whole thought of it was, I thought, who's going to get in that thing and ride those rockets up into space? And the thoughts of a ten-year-old just ran wild. And I remember in 1981 at Youth Road Elementary School, we all got together in this auditorium where they somehow projected the news onto a screen. I know that's not amazing now, but I don't, still don't know how they did it. But it was kind of faded on a big movie screen, and we all gathered and watched the Columbia. Now it had been rolled up days before and was put upside right like this. And even as a ten-year-old, thinking about how those astronauts had to kind of sit like this, waiting for it to blast off, and I didn't like firecrackers, let alone a massive fuel tank blasting off with solid rocket boosters. I just thought, man, did they have head? Did they wear you know earplugs? What were they doing? I mean, all the thoughts that went under a kid's mind and all the development for this thing. And they attach it to these tanks, and over a couple of days, they make sure. Everything works right. They delayed it a few times because some wire wasn't just right or some computer message wasn't appearing just the way it should be back in 1981. Can you see the monochrome screen and how that must have looked and the, the rooms full of computer components it must have taken to do this thing? And so they, they ramp it up and they attach it, and now we're all waiting for it. Now I want you to imagine for a moment if it went five, four, three, two, one, nothing happens. Time to go home. It's over 10 years of development. We did it. It's done. That's the climax. Wait a minute. It's just sitting there. It's not going anywhere. What's it supposed to do? All this work, all this buildup, all this anticipation. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, this gives you a sick, incomplete feeling. I want you to imagine that for thousands of years, God is revealing himself through the prophets. He is setting up Messiah's coming upon the heels of the fall. No slowdown in God's plan as he explains how the Messiah would come as the seed, capital S, of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And then we watch for 39 books, the message of Messiah unfold in all the details of history over thousands of years. All sorts of things have to happen for this to work. And we ramp up to the time when when the, the Gospels are written and Jesus comes, this Messiah who is long forecasted, is here And he accomplishes his work perfectly over the course of his whole life, but especially in those three years of public ministry where he ties together thousands of years of revelatory history, of redemption looking forward to wrapped up into Jesus in a three and a half year period. And he goes to the cross and he dies for the sins of his people. He rises again. He doesn't just stay dead. He rises again, confirming everything about him is true from these thousands of years of revelation history. And then not only does he rise again, he then ascends into heaven and now he, and he commissions his people. And then imagine at that moment as the church is now starting to burgeon form. And then it nothing. We're done. Is that it? Is that the climax? No, it's not. He sent us. That's just the beginning. That's the foundation. That's getting us up to the launch pad. And now he's launching us by sending us to go do as he did. So if we just sit around and just navel gaze about what he did when he was here and don't consider what we're supposed to do now, we're no different than the Columbia being launched up to that with, with classrooms all over the nation waiting for that thing to blast off in five, four, three, two, one, nothing. And we do a lot of nothing. But Jesus says, and if we want to really apply Advent, God, as you have sent me, so I send them. So what does that mean? What did Jesus do? And how should we then do it? Because this is what he prays. Well, there are four different actions of Christ that I want us to consider that I think we have biblical justification to live out in our own lives. And the very first one is the most important one that he accents in his own life and that is he comes and brings the gospel now to be clear jesus himself is the gospel he is the sacrifice so when he's sharing the gospel by words before he actually ratifies the gospel on the cross as he makes it real as he makes it actually official if you will when he finishes the work itself on the cross and rises again when he's speaking to people he's consistently and constantly presenting himself so Jesus sharing the gospel means presenting himself for who he is now for us We have a fuller message to give because he's completed the work and we express to people Why we need christ what he does for us what he has done for us and we share that message But when we look at jesus's life, we see regularly and always he's conversing with people and sharing himself with them So that's the first thing he sends us to do is to share jesus with everyone we can possibly share him with But then he also does something else. You see Jesus throughout his ministry show great compassion for those who are hurting. These go together as showing compassion and sharing himself. And this compassion he shows is is otherworldly. It's supernatural. It's something that can only come from God. But he gives his people the ability to show real compassion towards hurting people because of Christ in us. So that's the second thing next week I want us to consider is how Jesus sends us to bring compassion to a hurting world. Then thirdly, we'll see also that Jesus is never, ever afraid to just bring the truth. He knows the bondage that lies have have won over the lives of people. People are living in lies. They don't know the truth. And so he brings the truth as he is the truth. And so we are to bring Christ and bring the truth and confront lies. That's what he does. And then the last week, we consider something else that Jesus brought. He brought peace. Now, I don't mean peace between two warring bodies as such. We think of all the peace that we would long for with all the wars being fought today. And that's part of it. But really the peace that Jesus brings that we can bring to the world is a sense of contentment about God's control over all things, no matter how bad they seem to get. See, Jesus in his life demonstrated a sense of contentment with the will of the Father, even in the most desperate times. And he brings that to his followers, as we even heard in the testimony by the warners. We heard it, we've heard it in many testimonies, the difficulties of what can come in our lives. There's a steadiness that comes from knowing Christ. So when we bring Christ, there's a way in which we bring peace to people. We don't promise them prosperity. We don't promise them uh, no illness or no trauma. But we do promise God promises a sense of peace about the control the father has over all circumstances and especially how he cares for his children, even when outward circumstances really battle against our emotions and tell us something else. So those are four different focuses I want to have with each of these weeks on Jesus sending us to bring certain things. Today, the first and central thing that Jesus brings is himself and we are to bring Christ We're to bring the gospel. What did Jesus do regarding bringing the gospel? Ultimately, he went to the cross and he finished the required work for the appeasement of God's justice. He rose again and ascended. But on his way to the cross, he shared the good news, which is himself. So how are we to bring Christ in this way? How did Jesus bring the gospel? Well, well, very simply, and I don't want to overcomplicate it because it's not. I want to make it very practical. He shared himself with everybody. The Gospels are filled with Christ meeting and conversing with a great diversity of people. This is what he was sent to do, to reach people with himself. So we are therefore called to reach people with Christ, to bring Christ to them. Well, how did he do it? This is one of the more interesting studies of jesus's style his approach his interaction with people because i think it guides us basically he talked with people all the time and the conversations came up in a great many ways and he always brought it back to himself not in a self-centered way but in an honest way for eternal life to be known i want to talk to you very practically about how you and i can bring the gospel to the world as jesus did By looking at what he did, and seeing how amazingly well it translates into our lives today. So the relationships you have right now, and just think of some of them. I assure you that there are many, many ways that you can bring Christ to a great number of people. More than you probably really give yourself credit for when you start to think of all the relationships you have. Imagine if we all did that. Well, how did Jesus bring the gospel? Well, the gospels record over a hundred different interactions, personal interactions between Jesus and somebody else. But there are 40 specific ones where there's real conversation that occurs that's more dynamic than just a word or two spoken. Not that those don't have power, but just focusing on those 40 main interactions or conversations with individuals. If you then break it down, nine of those interactions are Jesus prompting the discussion with the person. 25 of them are the person prompting the discussion with Jesus. A handful more are a third party, say like Pilate introducing Jesus to Herod or Matthew to tax collectors and sinners at a dinner. They're like those. The majority are people confronting or interacting or initiating conversation with Jesus. Think of a few of those instances. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and engages him. The demon-possessed man in Mark 5, as soon as Jesus gets on shore with the boat, he practically jumps upon Jesus. Jairus, when his daughter was dying, the woman who was with this constant hemorrhaging. And then Nicodemus, of course, comes to Jesus by night. Most cases, it's like that. But there are cases where Jesus looks up into the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down, I want to talk to you today. The Samaritan woman at the well, the crippled beggar. The point is, I would submit to you that many times you have people who are engaging you in conversations, and you probably don't think of it in terms of a gospel conversation that could be had. But I think more times than not, people will engage you. And the more you develop relationships with, relationships with people, the more they will ask you questions and you'll have opportunity. So you don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to be gifted with the gift of evangelism to basically have these kinds of conversations with people who will come into your circle, into your sphere of influence. You can initiate some, some will come to you just like they did with Jesus. But there are three things that I think Jesus exemplifies when he brings himself, when he brings the gospel that will help us all. And I want you to see them there on the outline. What did Jesus do and how should we do it? Well, first of all, the thing we note and will consider is that he cared enough for people, people of all sorts of diversity, to share the gospel with them. He did not let the standard barriers get in the way of talking with people about their need of him. So he cared for people enough to share the gospel with them. The second thing that he does that I think will help us, especially as we think about it, is that he adapts his approach to people based on where they are coming from. I don't mean he adapts the message, not at all. He never does. But he looks at where that person is coming from, what's true in their life, the lens they see through, and he comes from that angle that might most meet them. And he's considerate about thinking of others and where they are at in their life so as to more effectively communicate the truth about himself. That's a great lesson for us all. The last thing I think we should note about Jesus' approach, he's not about driving them to a moment of anxiety, and then they choose him, and then all of a sudden a switch flips, and they turn and follow. Those things happen in the course of his ministry, but for the most part, it's more like how he deals with the disciples. Over the course of three years, slowly bringing them to a fuller understanding of who he is. I would say and urge strongly that it's probably not likely that they truly believed until the resurrection itself. But Jesus patiently, over a three-year period, discipled them, and over the course of time, and God's knowing only, they're transferred from the kingdom of uh, darkness to the kingdom of light, and they are established in the faith. We ought to think about that style or approach of seeing people come to Christ rather than conjure a crisis quick to get them to make a decision. It's really a long haul, long view discipleship form of evangelism now with that in mind that introduction let's consider the first point caring enough for people to share the gospel with them if we agree that jesus has sent us into the world in some fashion like god sent him we see how he cared for people and shared the gospel with them i think the most vivid picture of this and there are many comes in john 4 turn in your bible to john 4 we have jesus here overlooking the social conventions of his day that would not have a full Jew male speaking with a Samaritan woman. We see him overlooking this to share himself. He cared, here's the key, he cared enough for this woman and for the Samaritan people that he engaged her in a most riveting conversation. John 4, starting at verse 7, follow as I read a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. That's the first shocking engagement right there. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I think this is noted because if the disciples would have seen him speaking, they would have made some kind of commotion. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him right away, she understands the gravity of this. How is it That you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. We don't know how she's saying it. Is that she being snide? Is she genuinely shocked that he would? Just trying to figure it out. Well, he has already dived in to this engagement, this discussion. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10. And here Jesus goes. This is such a beautiful picture of how we might engage folks. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What a response and an engagement. And I know you may think, that's Jesus, I can't do this. I've seen mothers over and over use common things in the house to teach their children spiritual lessons that are deep and profound. We can do it with all sorts of things. All the common things that you work with, you can relate with spiritual deep truth and lead people to Christ, to know Christ through it. In fact, that's the most masterful way we can do things is by using such illustrations to draw out spiritual truths. What a great picture. What a way he's turned this. Now look at verse 15. The woman said to him, sir. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What a painful job to have to go out and carry all this water. We don't even think about how difficult this be. A huge jug that probably gets gets uh, consumed very quickly and you have to constantly go back. Give me this water that I don't have to keep drawing. I I love some of this. Jesus said to her, and this, I know we can't pull this off, but Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now, we don't know everything there's no about somebody like Jesus does. But notice how he cares so much for her. He crosses conventional lines. He then engages her on a personal level. He realizes there are barriers in her life. There are issues in her life that have to be confronted. They have to be dealt with and considered in light of what he's teaching. And he asks the question. And boy, does he ask a lot of questions. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband for You have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wow. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she goes right to almost an external debate Maybe to change the subject, but she's talking about the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans about where the right place to worship is. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't let the conversation get out of control as some people will try to make it happen so as not to focus on the key thing. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It comes through the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He's saying, let's get off the externals and the debates out there and bring it down to this fact that there's a spiritual reality. You must be aware of, and God is seeking that spiritual reality in all of us. And we might be, have to be right with him essentially is what he's saying. We have to do so in spirit and truth. That's how we worship him. And the woman said to him, and she starts being pressed and it goes to things she knows of. And she says, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ and the anointed one. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. She's like trying to push him back and say, yeah, this is the stuff you're bringing to me. It's just, it's a lot. and, And we'll know more and we'll have it clear when Messiah comes. What a great verse. Verse 26. In this wonderful conversation. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. What timing? They're looking up and they're saying, what is he doing now? Who is he talking? Look, is someone going to see him talking to the Samaritan woman? What is she, what is he doing? That you could tell that's exactly what's going on here. Then, ju- just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? They're all thinking it, but not saying it. Or why are you talking to her? chalk one off for Peter. He didn't say anything at this moment. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, and this story just gets better and better, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So now the people are, listen, if this lady can say this, we gotta go see what's going on. And they follow her out. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? What is he talking about now? So he's not only teaching the Samaritan woman, he's teaching his disciples. And the crowds are now coming out to him, all because he cared enough to ask a woman that no one said he should talk to for a drink. Do you not say, verse 35, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And at this time, the people must be walking towards them. Look at the people are coming. They're Samaritan people, by the way, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together for here. They're saying the, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps the time to reap is that handy saying it's time to gather people. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, stay with them. And he stayed there two days. That's two days with Jesus. And many more believe because of his word. And then after this time, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard ourselves for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. All of this began because he crossed a conventional line and talked to somebody because he cared for somebody enough to share Christ with them, share himself with them. How can we say that we truly love and care for our family, for our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and yet never engage in a gospel conversation with them? If we truly believe that Christ is the answer for our sin, for our life, for eternity, we will care enough for others to share the truth with them. We see this in Jesus' as dealing with people over and over again. You know, there's something else we learn, and this is the second point of the outline uh, that we learn from Jesus that helps us bring him to the world. Uh, we see him very carefully as he talks to different individuals Adapt his approach based on who he's speaking with. Now, I would suggest this goes together with the first point. If you care for people, you won't just give them a vanilla or just a blank message. You'll think of where they are coming from and address them in light of that. It says to the person, I know your situation, I care for your situation, and I have news that I think will help it. And so it takes care and thought to approach someone with Christ, bringing Christ in this way. Now, I want to pause and say, I don't mean when we're having gospel conversations with people or that we're sharing Christ with them, that we're always laying out the full message and then we're asking for a response. I don't mean that to be sharing the gospel necessarily. I mean, just sharing Jesus, some aspect of what Jesus has taught, what Jesus has done. And over time, you may be able to put that whole message together. Maybe you'll have one chance, whatever the case may be. We're bringing Christ into it. It's not just the natural world we're thinking of. It's the full world, the whole reality, which is supernatural also. And Christ's call upon us to share himself with others in whatever situation we find ourselves. Who knows over time how God will put all those interchanges together? That's his deal. Don't worry about closing the deal. The deal is God's. You're simply bringing Christ, who you know and love, into the situation that God has placed you in. And that's what we see happening And the approach that Jesus takes is to look at the person's situation and speaks to them in light of that situation. He never, ever alters the message. In fact, in some cases, he's even more blunt, but he is very clear, but he's very careful and considerate. We have to know that caring for people enough to talk with them about Christ also means caring enough to know where they're coming from. Uh, A poor person will have a certain experience that colors their perception of things. Uh, Likewise, a rich person has a certain lens they see through a person who has endured sickness will view the world in a certain way A person with a particular social experience will hear a message in a certain way A person who has been harmed or through some terrible trauma will have a certain angle on things We have to know this. Jesus knew this and he crafted his message Accordingly didn't change the message, but he crafted it and approached it in a way that met that person. Just think of a few examples Jesus meets the rich young ruler who comes to him, initiates the conversation with him, and he says to Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Okay, now Jesus is Jesus. But when someone says that right off the bat, you kind of know where they must be coming from. They think there is a certain set of things you do to be right with God. So Jesus already knows where he's coming from. He knows where the man's security is in. The man's security is in his ability. Because if you wouldn't ask it, if you didn't think you could fulfill it. So he's asking it so Jesus can tell him and he could say either one, oh, I can go do that or two, hey, I've done that all. And we know what the answer is. Jesus lays out some of the commandments, not as a means of salvation, but as a way to test the man and show really the man that his trust is in himself. And the man says, oh, I've kept all those commandments since I was born. I've done all the things you said. I'm good. Jesus could see maybe by what he was wearing or who he was with that he was rich. So the man was dependent upon his stuff and the things he had done. So this is how Jesus then decides to respond. I've done all these things, he says. What do I lack? Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. He adapted the message to strike at the heart of the man's idol. So the man heard this and went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He was unwilling to trade those possessions for Jesus. Ultimately, he did not want Jesus. But Jesus had to show this to him. And who knows what God did with this man in the years to come? Jesus said to the disciples, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. He's a rich, dependent man, dependent upon wealth for security. He's a religious man, dependent on his perception of religious righteousness for salvation. And Jesus delivers a message in light of where the man was coming from that penetrated his heart, spoke to his heart, and penetrates our hearts these many hundreds and hundreds of years later. Do you know people like this? How would you craft your message? There's so many other examples, just to name a few, the demon possessed man, remember that I referred to it earlier when the man piles out of the, uh, or piles upon Jesus when Jesus is still in the boat and he's screaming at him and he's known as this demoniac who lives in the cemetery and he screams and he yells and Jesus basically just speaks with a word of authority and casts out the legion of demons into these pigs and they run off and then this, this huge confrontation, this power encounter occurs. And then when it's all settled out, the man now in his right mind says to Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to be with you. I can't go back. I don't have nowhere to go. I've been living in a cemetery, in a tomb, screaming and scratching myself for years. I have nowhere to go. Jesus said, you can't come with me. Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. Utterly out of control and in bondage. A man written off and lost cannot be found. And Jesus delivers the message by his actions in light of where the man was coming from. Do you know someone in bondage? Do you know somebody that everybody says is lost and without hope? Do you believe Jesus could save them? What about Nicodemus? He comes under the guise of night, under under the the... the secrecy of night and he says teacher i know that you your teacher come from god for no one can do the things that you do unless god is with him and jesus said truly i say to you because he can tell already this is a jew this is a pharisee this is a man who believes he's right by that that uh, just by the what he has come from his joining together with these pharisees and yet there's something in this guy's heart that makes him insecure and he senses all of this and so he says unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a, center t- a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, again, using the, the natural world to describe the, the spiritual world, he says, I say to you, unless someone's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said that to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you will hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. It's not because you're a Pharisee or a Jew or in this line of people. It's got to be a work of the Spirit. Only the work of the Spirit can make you right with God. He speaks to the man's misunderstanding, and he speaks the truth to it so that he might win him. And the man obviously doesn't know, and he says, How could you be a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Do you know people asking questions? Do you know people who seem genuinely interested but just don't understand? Do you see the need to take them, Christ? Pilate, there's an example of a guy who really didn't want to know the truth. In fact, he just wanted to disprove Jesus, so he felt better about his lack of knowing what the truth was. So Jesus, in classic form, when Pilate runs all these charges by him, says all these things. and you understand what's against you? Do you understand, basically, I have the power to set you free? And they say, you're the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? And the only thing Jesus says to Pilate, you have said so. Sometimes it's a simple word to someone who's really not looking for the truth. They're just looking to discredit you. A simple word can have an incredible impact. But Jesus made no further answer, it says in Mark 15, 5. So that Pilate was amazed. In none of the instances of Jesus' interacting with people did he hide the truth or change the content of the message. But in each interchange, Jesus interacts in a slightly different manner depending on who he's speaking to. He spoke to the Pharisees differently than a grieving father who had just lost his daughter. He spoke differently to a chief tax collector than to a man born blind. You have all sorts of people in your life. Take time for a moment to consider the situations that they come from and approach them the way Jesus would approach them. Bring Jesus to them through the lens that they see or the way their experience lays it out. Don't take away from the message and the clarity of it, but be considerate and caring about where they are coming from, what's true in their life. A person's life circumstance is something that you have to consider when sharing Jesus with them. And if we're sent into the world as Jesus was sent in the world, we'll see this as important. A person's life circumstance is really a tremendous opportunity for bringing Jesus to them. Not all people will be receptive. But many people will be grateful and appreciative, especially when you show such care for them. You know, I know of a lawyer who often meets with people in desperate situations. Sometimes he's able to bring these people to a place of acknowledging God, to recognizing God's role in their life, their need for God. Sometimes he's able to win judgments for them that are probably more than they deserve. And in that time of appreciation. He's able to share Christ with them. Other times they're in desperate straits that no amount of good lawyering is going to help them out of. And he says to them in that state of helplessness and despair, you need God. I know of a nurse who regularly meets when cares for people fighting terrible diseases. In these cases, he's finds them open and willing to talk. And he does so in a caring way, not a condemnatory way in any, any shape or form. This very calmly it peacefully shares Christ with them. There are members here who have had neighbors come to them with terrible trials. They're dealing with children hooked on drugs and headlong into crime as an opportunity to bring Jesus to folks in such straits. People in crisis will have an opening to the gospel. There's a final point I want to make quickly that is noted there at the last point. Practice discipleship evangelism. What I mean by this, and we see it in the life of Jesus, is that in, in none of these cases do we see Jesus requiring an on-the-spot decision, nor is he promoting the prayer, praying of a prayer to solidify the deal, so to speak. Now, sometimes that kind of thing will occur. There'll be an immediate response. You remember Zacchaeus repenting after hearing this message, and there are other cases. But as a whole, Jesus patiently works with those around him, especially his disciples. They are the key picture Of discipleship evangelism. He works patiently with them through their disbelief to constantly show them over and over again who he is. He spent three years training, teaching, showing, yet it doesn't seem clear that they were believers until he rose again and their actions then gave testimony. We're often scared to enter gospel conversations with people, and this is usually because we have not built up a relational foundation foundation with them so as you develop friendships or look at the friendships you already have developed not based on whether a person agrees with you or not just because you care for them you'll have more and more occasion for conversations that bring jesus to them slow intentional regular conversations about jesus will be the thing that god most often uses to bring people to himself fast Intense manufactured crisis for a person to make a decision usually creates a false reality about what the christian life will be in the future The christian life is about being a disciple discipleship takes time it is a long view type of thing Bringing christ to people should be viewed in a similar way. It's the first step in their discipleship You know in recent years, we've all become aware of tsunamis something that we probably didn't know about maybe even 10 years ago Not much anyways they're basically earthquakes that happen on the ocean's floor and they cause from the epicenter a ripple that goes forward and when it hits land, it's usually a surge that could be 10, 15, 20, 30 feet high like a tidal wave that hits the land and then moves inland until that ripple's done and it destroys everything in its path. It's devastating when it reaches land. But do you know that you could be in a rowboat and be on top in the middle of the ocean of of a huge, huge earthquake or tsunami that happens on the ocean floor and your boat might not even capsize because it's not at the epicenter where the greatest force is felt. It's when it ripples away from the epicenter and it builds and it builds and it builds and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it crashes and hits the land. What I am saying to you, and I think Jesus is setting off here when he sends us, is the epicenter of redemptive history is the cross, Christ's resurrection and his ascension. That's the epicenter that that complex of events is the epicenter of it all. But the intended result is not that that's where the biggest impact happens. It's that it sends a ripple effect that gets bigger and bigger and it crashes into time and space, winning more and more people to Christ. And there are millions of people, millions of people who are coming to Christ in other places, maybe not all right under our nose, but on this earth, there are many people still being affected because people are still bringing Jesus and it's getting bigger, and it's moving. And really, it's only for us, we need to jump into that wave and and be part of it, because God's going to do it whether we sit here navel-gazing or not. And he's going to move that tsunami forward, and the biggest impact will come from the epicenter, Christ coming and his accomplishment, and it's still yet to come. The the high point of history was not that moment. That was the high point of redemptive history. The high point of history was not the Reformation. There's still greater to come. And that's when he accomplishes the bringing of all his people to himself, which we only see as a growing movement, no matter how bad or depressing things may get under our nose. The world's much bigger than our little place. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to save us from our sins. Father, thank you for sending Jesus Also as a model an example of how you would have your disciples carry out the mission that you have given us Lord jesus. I especially ask for my brothers and sisters and myself here gathered Indeed for our whole church family that you would give us a renewed sensitivity to the ways in which we can bring you to the world Starting with our family with our friends our neighbors the people that we meet here and there Our co-workers give us a desire to share you Give us opportunities to share you. And even if it be your will, a glimpse at the results of people who come, uh, come to you and have changed lives as a result of your using us to bring Jesus. Heavenly Father, as you sent Jesus into the world, so you have sent us. Lord Jesus, we know that you will never leave or forsake us in this great commission. We long to see your glory spread over all the world. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.